Isaiah 7, 10 through 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. The word of the Lord. This morning and every week of Advent, we have begun our worship with the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. That song, with its ancient roots and wide popularity, has a number of different renditions, specifically with different lyrics with the verses. As best as I can tell, however, each rendition of the song includes the same refrain with which we concluded, Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. This classic, peaceful, joyful crescendo. Emmanuel, God with us, at the very center of what we celebrate at Christmas. This revelation, God come near, is his name. And the hope that he shall come again in fullness. The word Emmanuel first appears in Scripture in the text that is our Old Testament reading this morning, Isaiah chapter 7. And contained in that name, Emmanuel, is this great and joyful promise, a sign and statement of God's goodness, his faithfulness, his nearness, his commitment to his creation, to his people, a promise of, of his presence with and for us. However, there's more to Emmanuel than that. There's more to the picture it provides on this fourth Sunday of Advent than promise alone. There is, as we look at Isaiah 7, invitation and even warning. A reminder, perhaps, of some of the shades around Christ's coming that don't always get our attention in our seasonal festivities. There is, of course, rejoicing, tidings of great joy at Christ's coming. But there's also this clear, this challenging invitation, and even warning associated with his coming. So this morning, before we get to the promise, the joy, today and later this week, the challenging invitation of Emmanuel, and the warning of his coming. In his novel, Here I Am, the writer Jonathan Safran Foer had this to say about intimacy, this true statement. He writes, it's easy to be close, but almost impossible to stay close. Only one thing can keep something close over time, holding it there, grappling with it, 
wrestling it to the ground as Jacob did with the angel and refusing to let go. What we don't wrestle, we let go of. Love is not the absence of struggle. Love is struggle. In the song refrain of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the promise is for a specific people, Israel. That name, of course, is given to Jacob in Genesis chapter 32, after what might be the most amazing wrestling match ever recorded. Jacob wrestles with God all night and does not let go and is given the name Israel, the one who strives, who grapples, who struggles with God. Emmanuel shall come to you, the one who struggles, who refuses to let go. In our reading this morning, it's the figure of Ahaz who is invited into the ring. Ahaz is this lesser-known king in the Old Testament. He ruled the king of Judah, kingdom of Judah for 16 years. And our reading this morning comes in the context of that kingdom, Judah, under threat, under attack from the tribes of the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria. And in the face of this threat, these threats, God has issued a promise of deliverance and help, a promise that Isaiah relays in the verses immediately prior to our reading. In light of these promises, God then issues this curious invitation we find in verse 10. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Precisely why God issues this invitation is unclear. The text doesn't say. But this appears, by all accounts, to be an invitation of goodwill, gracious and generously offered. Ask for confirmation. Ask for an indication that what I have promised to do, I will indeed do. As one translation paraphrases God's words here, I'll move heaven and earth to assure you. Just ask. Elsewhere in Isaiah 7, God's, word, God's words are depicted as being mediated through the prophet Isaiah. It's Isaiah who speaks on behalf of the Lord. But in verse 10, this invitation is given in a totally unmediated fashion, straight from the Lord to Ahaz, this direct invitation, engage the Lord your God. As I said, why God extends this invitation is unclear in the text. It's not commented on. But that God extends this invitation, such an invitation, to respond, an invitation to ask, to engage, suggests something of who God is and of his desires for his people. It suggests that God's aim is not simply to deliver them, to deliver his people, but in some way to be known by them. Not known as a concept or in an abstract kind of way, but known in an engaged, close, and intimate sort of way. The very fact of the incarnation, the reality of God become flesh that we celebrate at Christmas is a continuation, a profound extension of this truth that God desires to be known, to be touched, to be engaged with in a way that a wrestler 
knows the one with whom they grapple intimately at close quarters. Not because he needs it from us, but because of his love, his desire for us. I wonder how such a perspective might reframe our engagement with devotional disciplines, spiritual practices. How we might see prayer or silence, the reading of scripture, fasting even. Not as disciplines alone, but as a means of responding to God's gracious invitation. His presence with us, responding to his desire, the desire of the Lord our God for communion, engagement with you, with me. As a means perhaps of stepping into the ring. Our psalm today, Psalm 24, famously speaks of God's glory and his might. The King of glory, the Lord Almighty, transcended even intimidating qualities. But it also includes this invitation to seek him. They will receive blessing and vindication. Those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob, the wrestler. I'm undisciplined in my home with where I put my keys and my wallet down. And often enough, when it's time to go, there's some seeking involved. The time is ticking away, and I don't look. I don't glance about haphazardly. I seek after them. It is a full-bodied, fully engaged enterprise with intention and vigor. Where did those things go? I'm here, so, so far, so good. I've been able to leave. The image of grappling, of contending with God, the language of seeking him, pursuing his face, they suggest this level of engagement, of vigor, intention. They suggest a holding on, a refusal to let go. as an expression of faith and even love. Responding to God's being with us extending himself to us, inviting us to himself. In the classic 90s crime film, Heat, there's this argument depicted between Detective Vincent Hanna and his wife, Justine. Coming to the close of their tumultuous marriage, Justine declares to her husband, I love you. I love you fat, I love you bald, money, no money, driving a bus but you have got to be present. You've got to be engaged. You've got to be here. Ahaz is not present to the Lord his God here. Engagement with God is beyond Ahaz in our passage. In response to this gracious invitation, he refuses. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. It's wrapped in pious language, but Ahaz's refusal represents a willful unbelief, a willful refusal to engage. In the book of Chronicles, one of two places where Ahaz's reign as king is more fully described, the chief quality used to capture who he is is faithlessness, unbelief. It's this same faithlessness that the Gospel of John names when describing Emmanuel as the Word become flesh. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, did not respond to his invitation. 
It's the same faithfulness that Jesus wars against in Luke chapter 18 when he implores his followers to engage with the generosity of God. Ask him, bring your petitions, your cares, your concerns. And concludes with this chilling question. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? You see, what we mark and celebrate this season, the coming of Jesus, presents this invitation, provokes a crisis, a decision. If what we celebrate is true, that creation is not a closed system, that God is not far off, but is in fact near, near to his people, near to his creation, then a decision is, needs to be made. How will I respond? The coming of Christ provokes this decision. God is extending himself toward us in this radically generous way. Will we rise to engage him? Will you and I enter the ring? Will he find faith in us? I suspect that Ahaz's faithlessness, his reasons for not responding to God's invitation, are not too dissimilar from our own, from my own not too different from the reasons we fail in faithful response. It might be that he sees the promises in some way for others. The invitation is applying in a different kind of place. It's fairy tale kind of stuff. It's not here and now. The muddy, the real. The quote on the front of your service sheet by Dorothy Sayers gets at this, pushes against this idea. That the promise of Emmanuel takes place in a world like our own. With the language of Emmanuel coming as a child, this young boy, and the language of verse 11 about asking and making a request, as the original language has it, that all suggests a posture of humility before the Lord. God's inviting Ahaz to petition the Lord, to wait upon him. If you've been able to engage with the season of Advent as a season of waiting at all, you'll know this is a fundamentally uncomfortable, even humbling position. In the decidedly less classic film, Be Cool, one character says to another, if you're important, people will wait. If you're important, people will wait. The posture of asking and waiting is fundamentally decentering. We put ourselves at the mercy of another's timeline. We acknowledge their import over our own. We acknowledge our need, our lack, our inability to meet our need. As a king, I suspect this posture may have been something Ahaz simply could not abide. It might simply be a matter of habits. In the description of Ahaz's reign found elsewhere in Scripture, He's shown seeking security from the king of Assyria, even making sacrifices to the gods of other nations. I can't help but wonder how these kinds of practices saw him maintain a sense of control, a sense of being in charge that engagement with Emmanuel would not allow. To step into the ring is to realize how small, how weak we are. At the very least, these descriptions of Ahaz suggest a pattern, a habit of faithlessness. A lifetime of such patterns may have rendered Ahaz unable to respond in faith. 
One says no to God enough times, no to his gracious invitation enough times, and your entire life becomes a no, closed off to God with us. Part of the invitation of Advent is an invitation into this heightened engagement in spiritual practices, an invitation to habits that foster faith, that shape us in engagement with the Lord, responding to God with us. In much the same way that interval training, exercising with this greater intensity for a temporary period of time, fosters our capacity to endure or perform. So the engagement with practices of fasting, prayer, stillness with Scripture, in this more intense, focused way for a time, cultivate this continued, enduring capacity for faith, faithful response to God, that we would become the kind of people who can receive and faithfully respond to his invitation, that can receive Emmanuel, God with us. That identity, that name, Emmanuel, given here in Isaiah 7, comes as an invitation and it also comes as a warning. Notice in verses 16 and 17 the ambiguity surrounding this chosen child. For the nation, this is in many ways a wonderful thing, protection from their enemies, this threat you will be delivered from. It's the promise of a leader who will choose the right and abhor what is evil. But for Ahaz and his people, his house, it has tragic consequences. The fundamental consequence that Isaiah 7 names for Ahaz is exclusion. God will give a sign. God will deliver his people. He will fulfill his promises. But Ahaz will not be a part of it. If Ahaz in his faithlessness will not engage, he'll not be included in what God is doing. There are consequences for this refusal. And that's a terrifying development, one that might give us each pause this day. This reality of Ahaz's conclusion comes through subtly, but notice the use of pronouns early on when it comes to the Lord. In verse 11, as the invitation comes, it is from the Lord your God. Notice then in verse 13, after this refusal, the response in Isaiah's words, will you try the patience of my God, no longer yours? There is an ocean of disaster in those shifting pronouns. Ahaz, in David's line, an heir to the promises, the ultimate insider, we might say, is in this profound way now excluded from God and from his good purposes and plans. God gives Ahaz what he wants. No more engagement. How we respond to Jesus makes all the difference. When Mary, the mother of God, brings her son to the temple, she's told in Luke chapter 2, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many for a sign that is opposed so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. God's gracious invitation exposes, reveals something about Ahaz. 
the coming of Jesus as Emmanuel exposes the same failures of faith and love among those who oppose, who do not engage, who stand against his coming in peace and mercy. Mary's own song of her son's coming highlights how his coming will tear the proud, the rich, the tyrannical from their perches. There's clear hope in that message of a just and new way of doing things, of being in the world. But also warning to us who would be ourselves tyrants of our own lives, who would seek to maintain our perch of control and pride and refuse God's humbling and generous invitation of himself. The Lord extends himself to Ahaz, invites him into the ring to engagement, but in his pride and willful unbelief, he refuses. This is a cautionary tale. There is challenge and warning here. Challenge that we might be ruthless with our own sin, our own practiced and patterned willful unbelief. There's challenge and warning that we might now engage the Lord in faith, in humility, calling upon him, responding to that generous invitation. That we might step into the ring. In my experience of pastoring couples, offering counsel to couples, the concern, the most heightened concern about the situation comes not necessarily when they're like, we're fighting all the time. I'm angry. I'm mad. The real concern comes when the person says, I don't care anymore. I'm so exhausted. I'm so tired of this. Just whatever. I will not engage. One of the beautiful things that God is doing among us at Church of the Cross is how he's brought so many of us from so many different places, different backgrounds. Now, he's brought, in fact, many people who might describe themselves as, and their faith as in a place of flux, transitioning, perhaps, from ways of engaging the Lord, being the church, that no longer satisfy them with ways that may have even left wounds and certainly uncertainty. And part of the vision, the hope for our community, is that this would be something of a field hospital. A place where you can come wounded, uncertain, discouraged, and doubting. You can bring that baggage, those wounds, and in this place, name them as real. A place where you can fall apart and know the embrace of God and his people. Yet that image of a hospital, it suggests progression, doesn't it? Healing, restoration, growing strength. Otherwise, it's not a hospital, it's a hospice. And Ahaz exists, I think, as this cautionary tale because he is a picture of disengagement. With our baggage in our wounded states, in that place of flux or uncertainty, there is this temptation, I think, to the same posture. That posture of disengagement, to decline or fail to heed the invitation of God to himself to miss out on God's gracious and glorious plans and purposes. Advent is a season full of waiting, of heightened spiritual practices. It's also this season of warning and challenge. 
So gently, let me extend this pastoral warning to all of us to keep your feet moving, as they say in football practice. As you come against those barriers, as you encounter that opposition, keep your feet moving. With your questions, your confusion, with your baggage and your wounds, find some way today, this week, this season, to engage with the Lord your God. Engage him in his word, among his people, in service, on mission, in worship. There are this myriad of ways to engage. If you're at a loss, reach out. I, I, Nick, others would love to talk with you about what it might mean in your situation to engage, to respond to the Lord. It might be expressing your anger, your disappointment, your fears and longings, but doing it before the face of the Lord as a means of responding, of seeking his face, of Trusting that he will be who he says he is, Emmanuel, God with us. Because in him, at long last, there is such great promise. Promise that God is faithful, that he's working to deliver and restore. And for those for whom this warning might fall especially hard, A promise that our faithlessness, our willful unbelief, need not have the final word. In our gospel reading this morning, the evangelist Matthew takes up the name Emmanuel, the language of Isaiah 7, and speaks of the deliverance this child brings in terms of sin. He will save his people from their sins. And this is precisely what Jesus our Emmanuel does. Such that whatever our paths of faithlessness and pride, whatever our unbelief, our refusal of God's gracious invitation, today, this day, something new is possible. That for the first time, or for the first time in a long time, we can in Him receive God's gracious invitation. We can say yes to him who is our perfect yes to the Father. We can say yes to him by whom we ascend the mountain of the Lord. And we can hear the words he says to his followers. After the cross, after redemption, after the resurrection, he says to his followers, I go to my Father and your Father. I go to my God and your God, overcoming an ocean of disaster and distance between we who are sinful and far off in our unbelief, drawing us into his good purposes and plans. So rejoice, rejoice you who wrestle and struggle with God, for Emmanuel, the Lord your God, God with us has come to you, does come to you, shall come to you. Let us pray. Gracious and almighty God, we praise you for what this season of Christmas tide that is beginning this week, what, what it signifies, what it means that you have not stood far off, but have drawn near to your creation, drawn near to your people. I pray for each and every one of us here this morning, especially for those of us 
who carry some of those wounds, that baggage that was described. I pray for those of us who struggle this season to know you as Emmanuel, as God come near. Would you, in your mercy, in your kindness, make clear your generous invitation to us this day? And would we, wherever we are in the journey of faith, see in you the promise of new life with God, the promise of engagement, the promise of new hope, O Lord, in you. Would you strengthen us to respond in faith, we pray. In your name, amen.